Turn with me in your Bible to Job 40 if you have one. If you don't have one, we'd love to give you one. We have one at the back that's just for you. This is the second to last week in our uh, series through the book of Job called If God is Good. And this is going to be one of those hard sermons, um, but it's, you know, we have to go where the text takes us. And I think there's also going to be much encouragement in there as well. Last Wednesday, Janine and I were in LA, Los Angeles, not lower Alabama. And uh, we were headed back to the airport. And so we, we got an Uber car or actually a Lyft technically. And uh, when our driver arrived, uh, his name was Octavian, we hopped in the, the back of the car and I looked and I saw in the front there, right in his phone, which was attached to his uh, dashboard, that it was going to be a 37 minute ride to the airport. So, you know, what I try to do when this happens, I don't always do it, but I try to think, okay, I've got 30 plus minutes with somebody. How am I going to start a conversation that hopefully will give me an opportunity to share the gospel? And so what I said to Octavian was, I said, hey, is this your, is this your main uh, gig or this kind of a side hustle? And uh, he actually spent the next 30 of our 37 minutes uh, talking. Uh, and it was really a sad story explaining to us how he had a job, he worked in a factory, and he injured his shoulder and he said as soon as he injured his shoulder, the, the company just kicked him to the curb, fired him. Uh, they, they secured this high-powered legal team, which even though he injured himself on the job, uh, he, had, he said, I had no way, really, no recourse because of the, the legal team they assembled. And so he said, I've been driving, you know, driving Uber and, and Lyft ever since then. It was a sad story. And Janine and I, we grieved with him, and we said over and over, that's, that's horrible. That sounds terrible. I mean, we're really, really sorry for you. And sorry that you had to go through all of that. And he said, you know, he said, well, he said, I know how karma works. I believe in karma. And he says, they're going to get theirs. And I thought immediately, there's a perfect opportunity for me. And so I said, oh, so you, you believe in karma. Do you believe in God? He said, absolutely. God is everything to me. He said, God is the reason that I'm here. God is the reason that I've, I've made it through everything that I've made it through. He said, God has has carried me through this. And, and he said, if I get a, if I, even if I got a $1 million settlement or if I get nothing, he said, I know that God is perfect and his way is perfect. I said, oh, this is just, I mean, the Lord's been very kind to me here. I said, so you, with this perfect God, how can we, as broken and sinful people, how can we be reconciled to a God who's perfect? He kind of looked back in the rearview mirror, paused for a minute, and literally sort of scratched his chin. And he said, well, he said, I believe that, you know, what God really wants is for each of us to worship, you know, our own God in our own way, as long as we only worship one God. And I said, okay, well, but what do you do with, you know, you, the Ten Commandments, you've heard the Ten Commandments, sure. What do you do with the first commandment where God says, that, that I am the Lord your God, that you'll have no other God besides me. In other words, you'll worship no other God but me. He said, well, I don't really think that's what God meant. I said, okay, this is, that's an interesting take. Uh, I said, well, that's actually exactly what the command says. And he said, you know, I've, he said, I, I believe that, he said, I, I built a statue of Mother Mary in, in my house, and, and I'm going to build another one outside of my house. And he said, I believe that, you know, that what God wants is just for us to kind of come to him as, you know, on our own terms. And I said, but actually in the Bible, the Bible says that, you know, we see in the Bible that when God, when, when God saw other people worshiping other gods, it angered him. One, because those gods didn't really exist and they couldn't help anybody. 
but also because He is our Creator. He is our Redeemer. He is our Sustainer. He is the one and true living God. And uh, he said, see, he said, I know, see, even there, God violated his own commandment. I said, what, what do you mean? He said, well, God got angry. And I said, the thing is, there's actually no command in the Bible to not get angry. There is a command in the Bible that says, uh, do not sin in your anger. But I said, what matters is what we do with our anger. And actually, God has every right to be angry. It's a holy anger. It's a righteous anger when we worship other gods. And I said, but God has actually made a way for us to worship him, to be right with him. And that's through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. He said, yeah. He said, my grandmother used to tell me about Jesus. Now, I looked at that moment. I saw I only had two minutes until we were going to be dropped off uh, at the terminal. And so I didn't want to, I didn't know exactly where to go with this. I said, well, I said, it sounds like you've been through some really, really difficult things. And, you know, it breaks my heart to hear all that you've been through. And um, I said, maybe the true and living God is actually calling for you to seek him, to find a church where he's worshiped. Because this much we know for sure, there's only one God. And because he made us, he rightly demands our worship. At that point, we'd reached the Delta Terminal, and I had to get out. But he said, yeah, you know, maybe I'll do that. Now, not many people in our part of the country would say that God is fine with us worshiping whatever God we want, you know, as, as long as it's just one God. Uh, but what we do see in our area of the world is this apparent belief that God is fine with us saying that we believe in Him, and even maybe pledging our trust to Him, um, and then kind of fashioning God into an image that's more palatable for us. Saying things like, well, I believe that God would do this. Or, well, I just don't believe that God would do whatever it is. Not appealing to God's self-revelation. Not appealing to what God says about himself. But instead, really appealing to their own personal preferences. Here's kind of the way that I would like for God to be. Well, what happens when we do that? We actually lose the real God, and we have a caricature of God that we've actually created. Here, uh, unlike in places like Pacific Northwest or New England or Southern California or other places where people may openly say they don't believe in God, which you know, we see that, here, most people will say they believe in God, but in truth, He wields very little influence in their lives, how they think, how they live. To the contrary, again, he's a God that they've created rather than the one true God who has created them. Well, lest we think that God is okay with that sort of approach to him, making him out to be whatever we want him to be, here we have in Job's, Job chapters 40 and 41, God's own words, terrifying words on one level, uh, encouraging words on one level, words actually dripping with sarcasm. Remember the context. Job has been demanding answers from God, and Job's friends have been giving answers for God, and God's not been too keen on either. But we're also going to see in this passage, this majestic, holy, and terrifying God, as we just prayed, has secured a salvation, a way for us to be saved, a way for us to know Him and be known by Him in a manner and in, fa in a fashion that we would never imagine. So Job uh, chapter 40 
we'll cover most of portions of chapters 40 and 41. Let's start by looking at 1 and 2 of chapter 40. Here reads the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. I want to stop there because this is the beginning of God's second speech, so to speak. And he sets the tone for it right away. Job has been clamoring for this opportunity. If I only had my chance, if I only had an opportunity to present my case before the Lord, then I could show him how I'm right. Then I could show him, I could prove to him that I'm blameless. I could show God that, that I'm right and God would recognize that. And Job says, I just, that's really all I've wanted is a chance to just give my case to, before the Lord. And so God says, okay, it's your turn. Go ahead. And Job knows better. Look at verses 3 through 5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. There were several times in Job's speeches where Job suggested again that the only thing he was really missing here, what he needed more than anything else, was an opportunity to present his case. Uh, he would show God why all this stuff is unfair, why God just doesn't have the right perspective in all this stuff, and he would, in a sense, we can say, put God in his place. But when he gets the chance, Job wisely decides against it, puts his hand over his mouth, verse 4, and dare not say a word. Why? Because Job recognizes that compared to God, he's nothing. He's too small to speak. How would he make an argument against the all-knowing and sovereign God? Job is the creature. God is the creator. Job is the clay. God is the potter. Job can't control anything. God is in control over everything. He is sovereign over everything. Job recognizes his place. And it's a good thing because God will remind Job of his power by mentioning three different things, three different areas where God exerts his power, authority, sovereignty over humanity, over the creatures of the earth, and over the creatures of the sea. Now there's a rhythm to this, and the three sections, they, they each kind of build on each other. God will present these elements, humanity, earth, and sea, and then he will ask Job rhetorically the question, can you control them? I can control them. Can you control them? And really the whole point of these two chapters is God is saying to Job, I'm God and you're not. So why would you question me? Why would you try to make me into something that fits better with your desires? Since I'm God, why not receive me the way that I have revealed myself to be? Now look at verses 6 through 14. Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. All, by the way, words in the Old Testament which describe God. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. 
Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then, God says, I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Now, it's fair to say that God's being sarcastic here. He says to Job, look, if you can do all these things, adorn yourself with majesty, show your power, show your glory, and then I'll acknowledge you. If you have an arm like God's, God says, no, of course, we've already pointed out God doesn't have arms or legs. He is spirit, as Jesus says in John's gospel. But God's, God's arm is a metaphor for his power. And God says, in essence, do you have the power to act decisively in creation and history and bring about whatever end you want? If you do, verse 10, show it off to the world. Of course, the answer is no. Job doesn't have any power at all. Then God says in verses 11 and 13, if you have the power, Job, to bring judgment on the wicked and hide them in the dust, which is just a euphemism for make them go away, remove them from the earth, then God says, I'll acknowledge you and I'll admit that you don't really even need me. But of course, Job has no such power. He can't even remedy his own situation, let alone purge evil from the earth. So he's left with no answer. And implied, again, in all of this is God does have the power over humanity. He is sovereign over the actions, the plans, the schemes, the successes, the failures, even the hearts of men. Proverbs say that even the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord who directs it wherever he pleases, uh, like a river. Now we have to ask the question, why is God approaching Job this way? What, what is he, what's he so upset about? I mean, why is he saying this thing? Why this endless barrage of rhetorical questions? And the answer is, God is not pleased with Job. He's upset at Job. Not because Job, oh, Job engaged God with his questions, or even because Job was honest about his struggles. That's not what bothers God. God is upset with Job because Job assumed and made declarations about God's character and justice that simply were not true about God. One Old Testament scholar writes, Job was more concerned with his own reputation for righteousness than he was with God's reputation for justice. And that brings us to our first point this morning, if you're taking notes. While God delights in our honesty and candor, He will not permit us to question His holiness or defame His name. You know, we've had, and this was intentional, I want to make sure that we have some gifted preachers on staff here, and I want to make sure that every one of our pastors had a chance to preach through this rich book of Job. And you've heard from multiple of us, you've heard, yeah, God wants our honesty. God wants us to be candid with Him. He doesn't want us to sort of uh, hide our feelings. He knows our feelings anyway. He, he doesn't want us to come and, and, and think, well, I can't tell that to God. I can't share that hurt with God. No, God wants us to be absolutely just open before Him. He wants us to share what we're going through, our feelings, our hurts, our struggles. There's nothing that God can't handle. But there is a line that we can cross, but we ought to be careful of. And that line is when we start to attribute to God impure motives. When we suggest that God has done wrong. The overall witness of Scripture is clear. God has never wronged anyone. He's never sinned against anyone, and he never does anything with impure or sinful motives. 
what we see in our world and we experience may not make sense to us. Of course it doesn't. You know, we, we hear about one tragedy after another. It's heartbreaking. This man Octavian, you know, kicked to the curb by his own account because he had an injury at work. Lost his job, had a family. We see injustice everywhere. We see all kinds of horrible things everywhere. And they don't make sense to us. Of course they don't. But that doesn't mean that God has done something wrong or that he can be charged with evil. Certainly there's mystery there and you know, we can't plumb the depth of the Almighty. But God's holiness is never in question. When Isaiah, the great prophet Isaiah, was called to ministry, we might say, he received a vision from the Lord sitting on his throne with seraphim at either side. One seraphim called to the other seraph and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. This is, this is actually the only description in the whole Bible of God, the only description that employs this sort of threefold formula. It's a literary device meant to bring great emphasis. God is, we can say it this way, colloquially, God is really, really, really holy. In other words, he's holy in a way we can't even fully fathom. He's holy in a way that, that, that goes beyond uh, our mental ability to grasp. So even though it may look like evil is winning, and it may look like that it may appear as though chaos is triumphing in our world, everything in our world is under the sovereignty of the one who is completely holy. And, and I have to tell you, I mean, that's, that's tremendous comfort for us as believers. It's tremendous comfort for me personally to know no, I can't make sense of what's going on in the world. The tragedies, the hate, the evil, the murder, the injustice, the oppression, all of the I can't make sense of it all. But I do know that the one who is sovereign over all of it is holy. What he does is always right and for the right reasons. What he says is always true. What he promises, he will always deliver. And we can ask God, why? And we can say, God, I don't understand. And we can plead with God, God, where are you? Show yourself to me. Make yourself known to me. And we can say to God, I am hurting. And I am confused. And I am frustrated. And I am all of these things. And those are all fair things for us to do that God actually receives. We can, again, even ask God where he is in our dark times. But what God does not tolerate is for his holiness to be questioned nor his name, which represents his very essence, to be defamed. Now, pick up in verse 15. God says, Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins, his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar, and the sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He's the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword, for the mountains yield food for him where all the beasts, uh, wild beasts play. Under the lotus plant he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he's not frightened. He is confident Though Jordan rushes against his mouth, can one take him by the eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Remember, this is a continuation of the speech that God delivered to Job beginning in chapter 38 and 39. Pastor Adam covered so well last week. 
Um, and in those chapters, as a way to show how powerful he is, God actually brings out a number of animals. He talks about the lion, the mountain goat, the raven, the wild beast, the war horse, the hawk, and evil. All of these that, that God not only provides for, but is also powerful over. And now in verse 15 of chapter 40, God brings up the behemoth, which is actually a, it's kind of a unique Hebrew word, which is actually just translated, it's actually a plural word, beast, but this is used in the singular. Behold the behemoth, God says. Now, what is the behemoth? We don't really know for sure. Uh, some say it's a reference to a crocodile. Others say uh, the elephant. The most dominant view over the last 50 years is this is a reference to the hippopotamus. Um, they were recognized in the ancient Near East as deceptively dangerous creatures. Uh, the first time I went to South Africa 20 years ago, I traveled with several pastors. I think there were maybe nine other pastors, as I recall. And, and all of those had with them their respective wives. And so it was th these pastors and their wives. So say there were nine and so there were 19 of us, nine you know, couples and, and me. My kids at the time were five, three, and one, and uh, my fourth had yet to come along. And so it, my, my, it was just a really busy time for us, so Janine stayed, stayed home. Well, traveling with this group, and we were visiting these orphanages that we were supporting and trying to provide some guidance for, and, uh, and some of them were way, uh, way back on these dirt roads bumpy roads in the wilderness where they have, you know, a lot of wild animals. Um, and we finally got to the place where we would stay for the night. And the host, who was a South African, said, okay, there are these, these bungalows here. We have, we have nine bungalows, little chalets. And so each of you couple, each couple is going to stay in one of these little, it's just basically a bed and a, uh, a little bathroom. You're going to stay in one of these. And they said, John, your room is over there. Well, I looked over there, I didn't see anything. He said, your, your room's about 300 yards in that direction. This is in the wilderness of South Africa. Now, that would have been okay, I guess, except about 30 minutes before on one of these dirt roads, we came across a sign. I, I got out and took a picture of it. Let me show you. This is the sign. <laughs> Hippo crossing. And so I said, okay. So I, when my host told me I was going to be over there somewhere, I said, okay, just for clarity's sake, like how, it seems like we just drove by that sign. Like how, how long ago was that? He said, well, it wasn't, I mean, it was just really right down the road, but there's no body of water here within, you know, say four or 500 yards. Um, but he said, but if you're walking, he gave me a flashlight. He said, because it was about dark. He said, but if you are walking to your room and you see what appears to be a large boulder, you know, don't, you know, don't climb over the boulder. I'm like, First of all, why would I ever do that? If I'm out in Africa and I see, why would I just go around it, which is what I did. Um, but he said, you know, because hippos, what they do is they come out at night uh, and they, they, they lie in the warm grass and they, you know, they, but he said, they are the most dangerous of all the creatures, even more dangerous than lions. Can you believe it? It's true. And so I can neither confirm nor deny the report that I screamed for 300 yards uh, and ran as fast as I could yelling uh, at the animals to stay put. Um, but I got there, and I'm here today, so obviously I made it, right? Um, but the hippo is known in South Africa among the big five as actually the most dangerous and the most mysterious, because this is such an incredible creature uh, that it eats, you, know, you would think a creature that size would eat other animals, right? But no, it just, it eats grass. 
It grazes, like verse 15 says of the behemoth. Um, it, the hippo makes its home where all the beasts play, you know, a la verse 20. Um, it weighs three tons, but it can swim even in the most turbulent waters. This enormous animal can even run faster than the fastest Olympic sprinter. So the fastest Olympic sprinter, Usain Bolt, I think in the last 20 or 30 years, he could run 27.33 miles per hour. A hippo can run 30 miles an hour. Now, you know, only for a short distance. You know, they can't run any marathons. But it runs very fast for a short distance. Well, what's the point of all this? Why did God bring up the behemoth? To emphasize to Job and us that not only is he holy, but he is infinitely creative and imaginative and powerful, infinitely greater than we are. This remarkable animal, whatever it is, no man can control, no man can tame, but God created it. God designed it, and God controls it. Job has no power over the wild animals, but God does. This is yet another way that God would demonstrate the difference between the creator and the creature. But the difference is not just academic. It's not just for us to say, oh, that's fascinating. You know, whatever this thing is, this behemoth. No, it's not just academic. It's not even meant to simply amaze us, though it will. It's meant to silence us and lead to worship and joyful obedience. Here's our second point. Given the majesty, creativity, and greatness of God, no argument against Him will prevail, nor defense prove valid. As sin-cursed people, we are experts at blame-shifting. We are experts at self-justification. You know, how many times you hear somebody, they've wronged somebody else, and they say, well, I'm sorry that you felt that way, or I'm sorry that you took it that way. That's, that's nothing. That doesn't mean anything. Uh, we're experts at sort of explaining away our actions. We want to defend our actions and our beliefs. We, we want to make our case as to why what we did was really okay, and why our particular belief of how God should be is really okay. But confronted with the presence of God, the utter greatness of His majesty, we ought to remain silent and listen and obey. In other words, the Word of God, what God has said to us, is infinitely more important than the opinions of men or even our own opinions. The reputation of God is infinitely more important than our own reputation. And the glory of God is infinitely more important than our own glory. In the late 14th century, there was a movement, kind of an intellectual, philosophical movement that started in Italy. And it would spread, eventually, of course, spread to the United States. But it's part of what's now called the Renaissance movement. And it was a philosophy known as humanism. Now, the ideas behind humanism have been around ever since the fall of Adam and Eve. But in terms of a discipline that is studied and promoted, you know, it's, again, been around since the, the early 15th century. And you know how it is with these ideas. With, with ideas and philosophies, really up until about, I would say, 15 years ago, they, they almost always were sort of propagated at the university level. So that's where a lot of this happens. Now, social media and other ways, you know, but, but this was communicated and promoted in the universities. And the whole idea behind humanism, the, 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 the idea is that 
humans are of central or primary importance in the universe. Um, not any sort of God or supernatural being or, or divine you know, person, but humans are of primary importance. And humanists believe that the existence of God is pretty much either meaningless or it's irrelevant to what really matters, and that is the flourishing of humanity, human potential being realized. And so the thought is basically humanity has all the potential in the world, and what matters most, or really the only thing that really matters, is what glorifies humanity and celebrates and, and makes us as humans you know, feel worthy and achieved. I read an article recently called, entitled Humanistic Psychology and Our Technologically Addicted Society. Sounds really boring, but it was, it was fascinating. Uh, humanistic psychology and our technologically addicted society. And I was curious, and this is what the, the article sought to show, was how social media, for example, exacerbates the problem of our humanistic tendencies. And in this article, the author, who's not a Christian at all, makes some, some conclusions that I wouldn't make at all. But he, he, reached, he said something I thought was fascinating. He said that an overindulgence in social media has led to the end of humanism as we know it. That is to say that the overarching concern is of humanity, you know, the, the, all of humanity. And it's now led to a new humanism that's developed. And what matters more than anything else now is not the good of humanity, but how I am personally perceived in the world. That's the most important thing of all things, how I am personally perceived in the world. And so what I must have above all else is a certain recognized identity or a certain persona that I have to pull off by way of social media. So the greatest tragedy of all is if I'm not perceived the way that I want to be perceived. And so if I'm not perceived, if I can't manage my persona, that's the greatest tragedy at all, of all. And what God comes along and says, no, that's not the real tragedy. The greatest tragedy of all is actually not if we're perceived wrongly in our own estimation, but if we don't recognize, perceive, and worship God the way that He truly is. It's not that somebody may see one of my Facebook posts and say, oh, you know, he looks unhappy or his family's not right or whatever. No, that's not the great tragedy. The greatest tragedy is if we don't recognize and celebrate and worship God as he truly is. That's what really matters, God says. Of course, the greatest irony in all this is when we realize our right place in the world, not as preeminent but subservient, not as independent but dependent, not as ultimate but subordinate, it actually results in a confidence and a joy that can never come by building a social media platform or sort of trying to create a certain identity. Again, this speech by God is highlighting how big He is and how small we are. Now, God continues. Look at uh, chapter 41. He says, God says, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook or press down on his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? 
Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me? This is the Lord speaking that I should repay him. Words that Paul would pick up in Romans. Whoever is under the whole heaven, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Now, skip all the way down to verses 33 and 34. On earth there is not his like, speaking of the Leviathan. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Now, we've looked at the behemoth. Of course, this begs the question, what's the Leviathan? Well, the Leviathan is special. God saves him for last and devotes 34 chap- or verses rather to describing his greatness. His teeth shred those who approach him. Out of his mouth springs forth fire. His skin is like armor that repels the spear and arrow. He leaves a wake of destruction in his path. What in the world is the Leviathan? Well, we could spend the rest of our time trying to figure that out. Um, some say, again, a giant crocodile. Others say a now extinct sea monster. Others say this is not a real thing. It's a mythical sort of fire-breathing dragon. Um, but rather than try to figure all that out, which would really be conjecture, frankly, I'd rather spend that time uh, making application of this because ultimately it seems like God brings up the Leviathan for the same reason he brings up the behemoth. That is to stress the, the infinite difference between the creator and the creature. To show, by way of example, God's power and majesty and glory. So I asked the question, what, what do we do with all of this? Well, at the outset, I said this is kind of a hard sermon. And I said, we've tried in so many ways to fashion God in our own image. We want to make God what we want Him to be. And that's why we say, well, but I believe, you know, based on our own preferences. The last few jo- chapters of Job, and next week's our last chapter in this book, they hint at the two areas where this happens, where we try to fashion God in our own image. Really, two primary areas. One area would be in the area of ethics or morality, and the other is in the, our view of salvation. So let me explain. What I mean by the area of ethics and morality is how we determine what's right and wrong. That's, that's what ethics, morality, so on. So we've made God a passive bystander in our moral decisions rather than the one who himself determines and pronounces what's right and wrong. You've heard me say this before. In most parts of the world, and certainly in our country, most people, not everybody, most people are okay with the idea of God, you know, that there is perhaps a God somewhere. But what they can accept is a God who wields absolute authority, a, a God who actually says, this you shall do and this you shall not. A God whose voice thunders from Mount Sinai, giving us the law and how to live. But if God is the author of life, the Almighty, the Sovereign One, the Creator and Sustainer of all living things, all of which God actually says He is in the book of Job, then shouldn't God be the one who determines what's right and wrong? So what do we say to someone who says, well, I believe as long as two people love each other, it doesn't matter what gender they are. 
Or, it doesn't make any sense to me that sex would only be for marriage. I just don't believe that really matters. Or, if love doesn't uh, make me happy, I mean, if I don't love her anymore and this marriage doesn't make me happy, then why should I stay in that sort of marriage? Or a God who says that we should actually give ourselves to others in sacrificial service. What, what do we do with people who say, I just don't believe. I believe this. Well, the answer, I think the starting point has to be, rather than sort of a detailed explanation as to why we believe something is right or wrong, rather the, the, the immediate response is really a question. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? And if so, shouldn't God be the one? Who determines what's right and wrong? Whether we like it or not? Whether we, whether we resonate with it or not? Shouldn't God be the one who says what's right and wrong? So in the area of ethics and morality, so often we impose our beliefs onto God rather than hear and submit to Him. But there's another area where we impose our beliefs on God. We say, well, I believe that God is this way. And that's in the area, that's in our view of salvation. We say, well, surely my works must count for something in my salvation. Surely God wouldn't choose some people and not others. Surely if I do more good works than bad works, I'm in. Surely if I'm going to remain saved, it's on me to prove that I deserve it. Surely there's a limit to God's forgiveness, which usually means I believe God can forgive my sins, but not this other person's sins. Uh, surely, you know, God uh, doesn't offer salvation to everyone. But once again, since God created us and redeemed us, shouldn't what He says about salvation be enough? And what He seems to be saying here is, I am a God beyond your figuring out. Speaking about the Leviathan, New Testament theologian Paul Zoll writes, the creature whose description is meant to humble Job reminds us that God speaks to us against our fixed ideas of almost anything. The way we think it ought to be is often the opposite of the way God says it actually truly is. Here's our final point this morning with a nod to Paul's all. The gospel of grace confounds our intuitive expectations of how this world, and especially God himself, functions. Here's what I mean by that. The gospel is the opposite of everything we think it should be. We think it should be the people who are the best are the ones who end up in heaven. The people who have more good works than bad works, surely those are the ones that, are the ones that God accepts. The gospel said, we, we, think, we think, surely Christianity is for winners, for those who are triumphant on this earth. But God says, no, this is a message for those who are defeated, who are broken, who are hopeless, who are helpless, who are absolutely beyond saving themselves. And it's not a message that if we clean ourselves up, God will receive us. But if we actually renounce any ability to clean ourselves up before God, and in fact, rely totally and solely on what God has done for us through the person of Jesus Christ, everything inside of us, 
and around us tells us that love must be won. Forgiveness must be earned. Acceptance must be fought for. But as I wrote on the homepage of our website, the gospel is not the announcement that if we do certain things, we will be loved, accepted, received, and forgiven by God. That's actually not good news. That's bad news because we can never do enough. The gospel is the good news that because of what Jesus has done, we are loved, accepted, received, and forgiven by faith alone. Not because of anything we do or anything we could ever do. Once again, God stuns us with His grace. He is the Lord of all. He is the Lord of salvation. He works beyond our control and beyond our expectations, and it's always for our good and His glory. This morning, you may feel like, what I've done, I just, there's no way I can be forgiven. Let me assure you, God's grace is enough to cover your greatest sin, your worst sin, my worst sin, and even the ones we think are not so bad. God's grace is sufficient. Or maybe you're here, you feel like, you know what, I, I just, I'm, I'm too ashamed to go to God. I mean, I, I'm just filled with shame. No. That's where God wants us to come to Him. He wants us to come aware of our own sin, aware of our own brokenness, so that He can put that shame on Him. Our guilt, our shame, our disobedience, all put on the cross of Jesus, where it was all sufficiently dealt with. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I just don't, I'm just not ready. You know, I'm not ready to come under the authority of God. Well, what I would say to you is, you don't know how long your life will be. Your life may end today. And take it from me, I, you know, I've been accused by my own friends as being sort of a you know, risk taker. One even calls me a riverboat gambler. It's not fair, but that's what he calls me. I'm willing to take risks, a lot of risks. But that's not a risk I'm willing to take. Put my whole, eternal, my whole eternity at risk? My li- living in rebellion against God? No. God's calling you today. He's not inviting you to receive Him, necessarily. He's commanding you to repent and believe. May today be the day. Let's pray. Father in heaven.